0: Welcome to today's episode of the Pediatric Consult. I'm Dr. Paul Bunch, your host for today. I'm excited to talk to today's guests, Dr. Neha Santucci and Dr. Kaleeb Graham, both from the Division of Gastroenterology here at Cincinnati Children's. A child with abdominal pain is a common visit in my primary care office and it can often be a complicated diagnosis to unpack. Parents are often very worried about their kids when they have been having ongoing abdominal pain and they're looking to us for answers. There are many causes of abdominal pain in children that we must consider, but one of the most common causes is functional abdominal pain. Today's discussion is a consult on functional abdominal pain. First of all, let's start by getting to know our guests a little bit. Uh, Dr. Santucci and Dr. Graham, if you could start by just telling us a little bit about yourselves, about your training, how you decided on gastroenterology, and how long you've been at Cincinnati Children's.
1: Sure. Thank you for having us here, first of all. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I'm Dr. Neha Santucci. I am a pediatric gastroenterologist with uh, specialty training in neurogastroenterology, and I've been at Cincinnati Children's for five and a half years uh, practicing, and I started the disorders of gut-brain interaction program um, here in our neurogastroenterology center. Um, My interests uh, are more focused on understanding the implications and, you know, risk factors that are implicated in development of chronic abdominal pain, as well as finding new or novel treatments that can help mitigate some of the symptoms as well as improve functioning in these children. So my research focuses on currently on sleep, in uh, sleep disturbances in children with belly pain, and um, uh, vagal neuromodulation uh, treatments.
0: Wonderful. And then outside of the hospital, what other types of interests do you have, what keeps you busy?
1: Yes, um, I just had, I have three month old now, so oh, uh, it's mostly time with the kids in the evening. And um, I do enjoy salsa dancing, so um, yeah, I actually am part of a girls salsa team, so um, haven't been dancing much lately, but looking forward to it.
0: That's great, thank you so much. And Dr. Graham, can you tell us a bit about your background?
2: Absolutely. so uh, pleasure to be here today. So uh, I have a, a somewhat of a unique background in the sense that, I initially trained, uh, did my medical school in Pittsburgh, and it was there I became really interested in how mental health and, and the physical health kind of intertwined and connected to one another. Uh, initially, I started my residency as a, a triple board resident, which is adult psych, child psych, and general pediatrics. This is at Brown University, where I really began to continue to really think about how the brain and the gut um, interacted with one, one another. However, I missed the, the the procedural aspects of medicine. Decided to finish out my training in general pediatrics, and, did, and then did a fellowship in in, in general in pediatric GI um, at CHOP in Philadelphia, um, where I really continued to kind of do things around. Uh, um, Motility issues, um, issues related to the brain gut access, and got, also got really into into education, uh, medical education, and so I've been here at Cincinnati since 2019. Um, also part of the the GI division and neurogastroenterology group, really sort of focusing in on on uh, disorders of the brain gut interaction, and I also wearing another hat as one of the assistant program directors of the pediatric residency program as well.
0: Great, and then outside of the hospital.
2: Outside of the hospital, I have five kids, uh, so they keep me quite busy, and I spend a lot of, a lot of my time doing youth sports and coaching uh, basketball and football in particular.
0: That's great. Well, with both of your backgrounds in the, the gut-brain uh, axis ac- and behavioral health, uh, I think you guys are wonderful consultants to bring in today to talk about such a complicated but common topic, so thank you. Uh, so, let's start talking about functional abdominal pain disorders um, broadly speaking, what are the what's the incidence of this? What's the prevalence of this in the community? Like, what what is a um, a common presentation of of kids with a functional abdominal pain disorder?
1: So these are disor- these are a subset of disorders of gut brain interaction where abdominal pain is the most prevalent symptom. Uh, here in the long and short of it is patients or children have symptoms of belly pain. However, when there is no organic disease to, uh, to justify the presence of that pain. Still means that the pain is real, it's present. Um, and uh, the prevalence is, it's, it affects about 25% of children worldwide. Uh, About 50% of our gastroenterology visits, pediatric gastroenterology visits are occupied by children with chronic abdominal pain. Um, It has, um, the biggest concern with these children is the disability that it brings along with it. A lot of children are unable to attend school. Um, It has a major impact on their quality of life. it affects, you know, the offset of different other comorbidities. They may be anxious. They may be depressed. It has a huge psychosocial burden with it, um, and I uh, and that brings in a lot of healthcare costs as well. Uh, uh, it's estimated to be about six thousand dollars per patient per year annual healthcare costs. Wow. So it brings up a global. It's a, it's an issue that needs to be addressed. I mean, it's a c- common problem with suboptimal treatment outcomes and. Uh, that's kind of where most primary care pediatricians, almost everyone encounters such a patient in their clinic. We had done a, a GI grand rounds at Cincinnati Children's where we had a poll that asked the audience, how many of you have seen patient with gastroparesis? Then we asked how many had seen with uh, um, constipation. We had numbers like you know 80%. How many of you have seen abdominal pain? It was 100%. So that brings up how common this problem is.
0: So you mentioned that belly pain is the most common uh, presenting symptom for kids with functional abdominal pain. What other, both GI-related and non-GI-related symptoms would you say can be associated with functional abdominal pain disorders?
2: So, so when I th- when I think about functional GI disorders in general, um, they are su- they a subset of, of symptoms symptoms um, that that patients can have, and you can have kids, you know, very very young kids for a pre. Um, preschool age kids all the way through and um, in, well into adoles- adolescents that have fun- these sort of functional GI disorders. We're, we're changing the terminology in some respects in, that, in, 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 the, in the literature as a whole to really think about these as disorders of the brain-gut interaction. So when we think about, and it becomes really important to think about it that way, because when we to begin to sort of describe the symptoms or describe what's happening with the families, it's important that we communicate the message that this is not all in your head and the symptoms are very much real. And so when we think about the brain the spinal cord, that's your your central nervous system. Your digestive tract has its it's its own sort of separate nervous system that interacts with the brain, the enteric nervous system. And when we think, think about the enteric nervous system and what it does with the GI tract, we talk about two main components of it, the motor component, so how things move, right? So you can have disorders of, you can have issues of how things are sort of moving down the GI tract. Things can move fast, things can move slow. You also, from, the, from a nervous system standpoint, can have issues related to sensory issues, right? So how things feel is the way I'd like to explain it to families. So those are things like pain, nausea, bloating, the feeling of fullness. And so when you have kids that have disorders of brain-gut interaction, you can have any constellation of symptoms where it could be things are moving slow and also having significant pain. You can also have a lot of pain, and also have nausea or vomiting. You can just have nausea in itself. Um, specifically for functional abdominal pain and pain-related uh, disorders, we're talking about pain being the predominant symptom, and then a su- and then a, and then s- many times they have subsequent other symptoms as well. They may have nausea as well. They may have vomiting. They may have constipation. They may have diarrhea. Um, these they may have other symptoms that are outside the GI tract uh, in terms of or or other uh, conditions that are related outside the GI tract that may serve as possible triggers and associations. Anxiety, depression be, are, are some of the ones that, that are re- relatively common. We see many kids with hypermobility or or EDS. We see many kids with uh, POTS. Uh, we see many kids with um, headaches as well. And so you can have these sort of constellation of symptoms connected to one another, but for the purposes of of the GI tract, we like to think about these things as both the sensory part, pain being the main issue, and then maybe having additional symptoms to go along with it.
1: To add to that, um, we, you know, functional abdominal pain disorders is a broad umbrella. We have, uh, you know, Rome 4 criteria. There's a bunch of criteria that divides them into different disorders depending on what is the uh, symptom and the location of the pain and other characteristics. So you have functional dyspepsia, which is mostly epigastric pain, and uh, it can be associated with nausea, postprandial distress, feeling of fullness, early satiety, uh, bloating, as Dr. Graham mentioned. Uh, There is irritable bowel syndrome which is more lower abdominal pain and associated either with change in frequency of bowel movement or consistency of bowel movement or both. Um, There's abdominal migraines which are more episodic disorders where patients are having paroxysms or symptoms uh, for for a short period. They are symptom free in between those and that recurs over and over. And finally, is functional abdominal pain not otherwise specified, which is the general pain, which is more periumbilical and does not fit into the other criteria. Okay. And um, another way of thinking is, you know, these, as Dr. Graham mentioned, we have an autonomic nervous system, which has a sympathetic and a parasympathetic component. When there are imbalances in these components, the parasympathetic nervous system is predominantly supplied by your vagus nerve. Uh, predominantly composed of your vagus nerve that supplies your heart, that supplies your GI tract, that affects sleep, that affects migraine, you know, headaches. So sometimes when patients come with so many symptoms, it's not, you know, it's important to kind of tell them you don't have seven different disorders. It's really one physiologic problem, and it's having manifestations in different organs, and you're seeing different specialists, um, you know, for predominantly one gut brain disorder of the gut brain that's happening.
0: That's very helpful to think about it in that way, that it's, you know, one common pathway or one common cause leading to these different symptoms. So that's great. You had mentioned that it can present anywhere from preschoolers up through adults, you know, young adults in our population. Is there a typical presentation you might expect to see from a younger child versus an, an older child that could have the same... You know root cause going on
2: typically speaking um you know when you see younger kids um have have belly pain the index of suspicion of things going on um is a little bit broader in the sense of really trying to decide how acute, how chronic some of these things are, because and then some of that just comes from developmentally, you know, how are they able to communicate really what what's what's happening? Um, however, you certainly can have preschool age and young school age kids have chronic abdominal pain, have functional GI, have functional abdominal pain, and, and have these kind of these sort of disorders. The typical population that you in, that we end up seeing a lot of, in our clinic tends to be adolescent, um, normally Caucasian females. Um, um, however, even with within that, that's not the that that, that is not the uh, not to say that's the only population that has that has chronic abdominal pain dysfunctional functional abdominal pain that tends to be the population that ends up coming to our clinics, um, and. Um, the typical presentation um, for, 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 for those patients, um, normally ha- they know we've had long-standing belly pain, that's been, when I say long-standing, I'm talking about several months to years, typically by the time they end up seeing us, there typically is some degree of dysfunction, and we'll talk more about function, how that plays in the role of, of uh, treatment, um, some degree of dysfunction uh, in terms of inability to either eat, um, inability to go to school, inability to maybe socialize with friends, inability to interact with family family members. There's some degree of dysfunction that's sort of happening uh, that that goes along with the chronic chronic belly pains, belly pain symptoms. Um, there may be other factors um, that 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 are at play that also that also. Um, Um, that are also associated with their 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 chronic symptoms like more more obvious signs of anxiety depression maybe some of the other uh, associated symptoms that you may not necessarily see in the younger age kids um, as as um, as obvious so let's talk
0: about that function or dysfunction and how that might guide you know how 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 far you take the evaluation i mean are there how much does that play into To the the workup, to the evaluation, to the referrals. You know, are there? If a kid is still able to go to school, does that guide you down one path versus the kid who can't go to school or the kid who's dropping out of activities? Mm -hmm. Um, I guess, yeah. The question is, how much? How much does function play into our approach?
1: So, yeah, um, I think function is really important when it comes to treatment. Like, how? What are you going to do with it? Would it would make a big difference in how you would approach or manage that child. In terms of the workup, I think we go more by some warning signs of disease if you're seeing. For example, if they have persistent fevers, they're losing abnormal amounts of weight, um, blood in stools, nocturnal stools, they have uh, persistent vomiting that is you know, um, not getting controlled by any other process, amenorrhea for females, uh, puberty that's delayed or precocious, um, you know, dizziness or bradycardia or other concerning symptoms, then um, we would do a more elaborate workup uh, compared to a child who has no none of these symptoms. You could potentially have a very focused workup, which doesn't go into, uh, you know, again, investigations in this population can be challenging you could do a lot and find nothing, or you could do nothing and find nothing, you know? So um, there were studies where you would think that if you did an endoscopy and you explained to the family, look, there's no disease, that should be great, right? They should be happy. But it was actually seen that the more, it was the incidence of, uh, you know, the patients accepting the diagnosis was really not different based on whether whether you had a normal endoscopy or not. And for the child, many times the message comes across as, oh my God, I was told I'm gonna be scoped and we're gonna find something, but they found nothing. I have a disease that nobody knows and nobody can treat, it is a rare disorder. Uh, and you know, that starts the cycle of pain catastrophizing and that worsens their pain that leads to the setup to develop more psychosocial, uh, you know, uh, f- risk factors that will further worsen their pain. So they start entering that vicious cycle of thinking that, you know, becomes harder to break, leads to the longer duration of pain. So uh, we, you know, we have come up with a mindful workup that you do because you don't want to miss disease, but at the same time, you don't want to overburden the family by constant testing. The other big concern is they keep coming to the emergency room. and and they keep getting CAT scans, they keep getting the same workup over and over looking for disease. So when do we really stop and say that's it, you know? This is what you have. So my practice has usually been in, you know, and I encourage primary care pediatricians to do the same. Time can sometimes be a constraint when you see these patients, but I think setting up the expectation should be real. Uh, When they come to you, um, I usually tell them that there's 85% chance that when I scope you, you're not gonna find disease and only 15% is the setup so then there is a whole broad disorders that are related to the chemical imbalances in the nerves that uh, you know are present without any without finding anything on an endoscopy And, uh, you know, these are just like migraines. You know, you have normal CT scans, everything is normal, but you do know definite disease is present. So I think if you set up the stage in that manner, I think the acceptance of the disorder, which then helps to treat them successfully, becomes higher.
2: And, 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 And to go to the question, about how function plays a role. I think, you know, part part of that really getting to the sort of the core, core ed is really making sure, you know, there's still very much a role for a good physical exam, taking a really good history, taking a really good social history, getting a dietary history, really kind of finding out all the information um, that you can that may be playing a role in in terms of what's going on with that particular kid. And so when we think about treatment, we're thinking about them in sort of two larger categories. One, symptom reduction. Yes, we want you to feel better. We want you to feel less pain. We want you to feel less nausea or vomiting or any other symptoms you have. We want to help treat your constipation or diarrhea. But one of the bigger function, big, bigger goals is to um, is to improve your function, right? And so when we talk about improve, improving your function, many times for patients, what they think about is that if you reduce my symptoms, my function will get better. Mm-hmm. But what we found is that actually focusing on improving your function actually helps get, get your symptom, reducing your symptoms. But if you if you try to wait for your symptoms to get better to improve your functioning, you're gonna find yourself kind of stuck in a hole. And the whole can get deeper and deeper into dysfunction. And for and, and when I say function, it really depends on the families. And so this is where it's a great opportunity to partner as, as a clinician, to partner with families, partner with the, with, the, with the patient to figure out what is important to them, right? For example, one kid's dysfunction might be they don't go to school. You may have another kid that's a straight-A student, goes to school all the time, but they can't really socialize and interact with their friends, and that's causing them sort of great distress. You may have another person that can't interact with their, can't have dinner with their family um, or have dinner socially. You may have someone else that can't participate in sports, and that's a huge um, stressor a sh- a stressor for them, and, and and really has played a huge role in, in in kind of everything that's been going on in the, fam- in the family life. Uh, and so when you kind of Start looking at how to sort of treat some of these things. You really start to see how all the different components come into really t- how to take care of the how to take care of them um, in a way that is holistic and not just sort of focusing on just the physical body, but also the mind and 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 all those other components to really g- get them to be optimized uh, the best way you can. To really promote um, holistic health.
0: I love that because so much of that is applicable to not just abdominal disorders, but a lot of the chronic conditions that we take care of as pediatricians. So, absolutely. you know, helping them to improve their function and their symptom reduction, I absolutely see that in the office. And that's a great kind of star to be following when we're, when we're uh, treating these patients. So, so that's great. Thank yeah. you so much.
1: Um, and I can add to that. Absolutely. So um, uh, I was reading on Twitter last night about uh, a, an article that just came out on pain quality, uh, um, promise measure for pain quality, and um, it was really the International uh, Association of, you know, Society of Pain that describes pain as a sensory and an emotional experience. So it's the actual nociception, and then there are all the other human experiences around it. So. In other words, you need to take care of the pain and whatever else that's, you know, sensory that's affecting it is as important to, you know, truly, truly treat pain.
0: Okay. So before we get to management, um, one last set of questions just on evaluation. So Dr. Graham, as you said, a thorough history, a thorough physical always are going to be the baseline. Um, are there any labs that you have found helpful in your practice, any labs or other imaging studies, other studies that you find generally aren't that helpful that as a primary care pediatrician, we probably should be not ordering at this time.
1: So yeah, so um, labs, uh, you know, sometimes getting a basic just set of labs that includes your chemistry panel, includes your complete blood count, uh, celiac, uh, celiac serology, which we go by the Uh, the uh, TTG, IgA, and a total IgA level. And uh, sometimes if you are suspicious, getting a thyroid level or a free T4 and TSH may be beneficial. Again, I go by more so if there's a lot of warning signs, you go ahead and do the blood work. It's always hard to convince a child, you know, to undergo blood work. Sometimes you just have to go by what the actual scenario is. If uh, there is someone who does you know, warrant an upper endoscopy because of some of the red flags, then you can combine the labs, you know, at that time to, you know, but from a primary care standpoint, uh, getting a uh, ROMF criteria does say you should at least evaluate for celiac disease uh, through a blood panel. Um, and then in terms of imaging, uh, really CT scans are often done but they may be totally an overkill in this situation. Um, it, uh, you know, if there are concerns, you could get an ultrasound of the abdomen, And you know, people ask about gastric emptying scans all the time. I think uh, you know, we're coming to this notion again where dyspepsia and gastroparesis are just two sides of the same spectrum. A lot of studies saying that they're just a spectrum of disorders. So, does it really change your management if they have delayed gastric emptying versus not? Plus, when it comes to gastric emptying, uh, the norms are not very well described in pediatric populations. So, um, you know, we sometimes get them, but I, you know, as a general rule uh, from a primary care practice, probably not a huge, you know, evaluation when you're dealing with pain, abdominal pain per se. Um, go ahead.
2: Okay. So um, th- there's actually um, literature uh, that, 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 that's, that's out there that says really the only test you need to do, um, especially in the presence of red flags um, or or even minimal red flags, if you're worried about chronic abdominal pain, is checking screening for celiac disease. So that's the TTG IgA with a total IgA, and then also getting a stool sample for a fecal calprotectin, um, and that looks for signs of inflammation in the di- digestive tract. Um, outside of that, um, th- there's there's data that says you may not actually need any other testing. Now the reality is that you have someone that's coming in with Chronic belly pain. They may have had symptoms persistently. Um, there are other labs that many times folks will get because they have their their differential is relatively broad to be relatively broad to begin with. So to expect you know everyone to not get any kind of labs or things like that would probably be an unrealistic expectation to be quite honest. Um, but you know it, it is not wrong to if you have a kid that that you feel like you've done a good history, you've done a good physical, you have no red flags present, um, and you wanted to really minimize your workup, just starting with those two things um, is actually a really good start, and then from there, Really, it's okay to make a positive diagnosis in in, in very early in, in your in in your uh, interaction with the patient, whether it may be the first time you meet them or even the the, fo- the secondary follow up. Many times, when I first meet them, and 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 I think and I have a str- very strong suspicion that this is a functional GI disorder, I will bring it up and have that conversation at the first visit, while also subsequently maybe doing some additional workup uh, because there are a few things that I want to make sure that um, there may be some there's there's some some clinical overlap some overlap Um, but we really talk about kind of you know we really talk about um, um, irritable bowel syndrome or functional dyspepsy or or functional abdominal pain so that when we have the conversation again assuming that those labs are normal it's not a situation where the family is sort of thinking well you just couldn't find anything Um, and so that's why you're calling it that it's like no this is what I thought it was from the beginning we're gonna do our due diligence and look for certain types of things based upon the symptom t- symptomatology you have. And then let's now c- start kind of thinking about working towards um, getting, getting you better, improving those symptoms and improving your function.
1: That is such an important point of having a positive diagnosis because it has a huge impact on the child. There are times I ask them, what, what has been told to you, you have. And I'm pretty sure people have made the diagnosis and they have said it, but not use the actual term. And or they will call it, you know, anxiety or, you know, other things, and it just doesn't click with them. So many times it'll be like, I don't know what I have. Nobody has ever told me what I have. When you have seen four other physicians and come to me, I'm pretty sure we all know what it is. But I think giving it a name becomes so important for them. Otherwise, it's this abstract that nobody knows what I have kind of situation that worsens things. And to add a little bit to the stool calprotectin, um, it's it's a valuable test, but again, just like the upper endoscopy, the message should be, you know, if you do see really high values over 250, you know, you're concerned about Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis and inflammatory bowel disease. But we have also seen that some marginal, there will be some elevation of fecal calprotectin even when you have irritable bowel syndrome. So, you know, between 50 to 150. In fact, we had a study that showed that the If they have three or more risk factors, high pain, um, anxiety, and functioning that is affected, their fecal calprotectin will be higher. So again, another set to point out that if it's marginally high, it's okay, you know. It still may be functional and, you know, you may not, you know, you're not saying that this test is abnormal, that means you have uh, an organic disease.
0: I think that's so helpful to know that we can make a positive diagnosis. If we've done the appropriate questions, asked the red flag questions, um, exams reassuring to make that positive diagnosis because I think so many of us get the impression or have been taught that it's, well, functional abdominal pain is a diagnosis of exclusion. You have to cross out all these other bad things first through extensive testing and workups and consults. So to know that we can make that positive diagnosis on a first visit and then move right into improving their function and then improving their, their symptoms as a, as a consequence of that is really very helpful. So, so thank you. So we've talked a lot about evaluation, about background of functional GI disorders. Um, what would be some Treatment options that a primary care physician could initiate that could that could help with symptom reduction and improve, and improve function, both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic.
1: Sure. And I think we could go, we could probably take an example. Like, you know, you have a 16 year old who comes with epigastric abdominal pain and right up a quarter in pain to your clinic. And has, she says she has seven out of 10 pain. She's waking up daily at night. She's missed 30 days of school last year. Uh, pain worsens after meals. Uh, certain foods worse than the others. These include spicy foods, fried foods, lasagna, pizza. Uh, Pain limits her eating. She has early satiety and she has constant nausea. She's lost about 12 pounds in the last four months. Um, She poops or stools every four to five times a week. They're sometimes hard, it sometimes hurts to pass stools. Um, She's had a history of cholecystectomy at the age of 13 for a similar pain. She remained symptom-free for six months and then the pain returned. She was diagnosed with anxiety and depression at age 14. She started having daily migraines at age 15. Dizziness is often present, was diagnosed with uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS. Um, They recommended increasing her fluid intake. She has joint pains. She got diagnosed with hypermobile uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, She takes longer than an hour usually to fall asleep and she sleeps only about five hours at night. Um, She listens to music while trying to fall asleep. The pain makes her feel anxious and depressed. She sees a therapist every other week, has been getting into arguments with her boyfriend recently. Um, She gets along well with everyone at school, has good grades, used to do gymnastics, cheerleading, ballet, and soccer, but unable to do anything now due to pain. Her mother has irritable bowel syndrome. So, kind of taking this example into mind, um, what do we, you know, first thing is the diagnosis. What does she have? Most likely functional dyspepsia. I mean, we, you know, this is a true patient scenario. And all the labs were normal. The exam was pretty, you know, straightforward, normal, except for some allodynia, which is when we felt her belly. She was, you know, in a lot of pain that is out of proportion to what you would assume otherwise. Um, And then, um, so this would clinically fit the criteria for functional dyspepsia. Uh, what are the modifiers around like what is what all is it affecting? It's affecting her mood um, It's somewhere there may be what I talked about the vagal autonomic axis getting affected So we're seeing different manifestations of other you know comorbid conditions um, She's having sleep disturbances, which pain makes her sleep less and less sleep makes her pain worse um, And finally, it's affecting her school. It's affecting her um, um, uh, Extracurricular activities and it's also affecting her eating which Sometimes the point is we call them avoidant restrictive feeding intake disorder, where they are beginning to limit eating because of the pain. So, what could you do in this scenario? Um, you know, broadly we put ma- ma- the category buckets for treatment as medications. Um, the two common medications that can be started in a pediatrician's clinic is amitriptyline um, and ciproheptidine. Those are more of a, you know, essentially a controller medication. You need to take them daily. Um, Amitriptyline uh, used to be an old, you know, again, was used uh, by, not as, not at the doses that were used for anxiety, but, you know, minimal doses. We would start at like 10 milligrams, increase by 10 milligrams every week to a maximum of 50 milligrams. But depending on their weight, if she weighs 40 milligrams, I would probably increase by 10 milligrams every, per day every week to up to 40 milligrams. And you know, um, quite important things to keep in mind when you start amitriptyline is sometimes you wanna make sure that they have a normal EKG. Although um, the incidence of developing QT interval afterwards on amitriptyline without any other medications, um, you know, drug interactions is pretty low. so our usual practice is not to do it after. I do explain to the family that you start the medication slowly and you stop it slowly, um, and you, you may wanna you know, pay attention to, um, uh, it could cause sleep disturbances if not done that way. Uh, again, the other medication we talked about was ciproheptadine. Uh, that is actually uh, it works on the serotonin receptors in the gut, and uh, it uh, it helps with gastric accommodation. Sometimes it also helps with uh, taking the pain away. They may even gain weight from eat from their symptoms getting better, which would be a great in this situation for her. It also helps with headaches. Um, so sometimes kind of trying to minimize medications because they see so many other specialties that are also starting different medications. And we see a lot of patients coming to us with 15 medications. So keeping that in mind, if you can combine certain symptoms and certain medications that work on all, you could you know, potentially start that. Um, you have uh, hyosamine and dicyclamine, which are as needed medications. Those would help with pain at school, for example. The the usual goal always we tell patients when they ask us, I just want to stay at home because I feel better at home, is no, we actually tell you to function. That's where the functioning comes in, because if you don't function, your pain will actually keep getting worse. Um, but if you start functioning more, and you go to school despite the pain, um, and you know, you can take certain things behavioral or you could you know in this situation pharmacologic could help with managing the symptoms at school Um, and in terms of non-pharmacologic medications or non-pharmacologic treatment modalities there is the large subset of behavioral therapy or learning pain coping skills but it is so important to clarify why they are seeing a psychologist. There is treatment for anxiety, and then there is pain coping. Um, and, you know, it can be very confusing. It's, you know, confusing sometimes uh, in our pediatric gastroenterology colleagues to who to, you know, refer to. But at least, you know, getting some kind of behavioral coping sk- coping skills helps decrease that pain over the long run. Um, other, I, I'll let Dr. Graham jump in into some of the other integrative treatments, and then I can talk more about neuromodulation.
2: Sure. So um, when I think about treatments, broad, broad, broadly speaking, you know, I really actually put them into three different buckets. Think of pharmacological medications, think of non-pharmacologic things, and also think about diet, dietary options. Um, and I think that really helps the family. And then what I try to do with the family is try to help them think about, you know, we're customizing care to you. Right, based upon what you, what, what, what is, what is your goals, um, alongs, and and we we search for a sort of goal alignment, um, and also trying to find out what's going to best work for you. So for some people, um, it might mean being on a daily medication or just having a medication that they use every once in a while. Now the reality, when you look at the data around medications, is that when you there's not good data that says medications work very well. Right. And so a lot of times we look for other things outside of medications, but also let families know that because many times when they end up coming to see me, they think that that, that the fact that medications have not worked for them must mean they have some r- rare incurable disorder that nothing can work for and nothing. And I said, like, no, actually, you are part of the norm. uh, it's normal for some of these medications. The data actually says the medications many times may not work. Um, And so, um, however, we still try them because for some people they do work for them. And as long as you minimize the the side effect profile, then you can kind of move forward to medications either on a daily basis like the amitriptyline or potentially ciproheptadine, um, those types of medications or more uh, as needed medications like Dr. Santucci uh, had mentioned, then you also have the non-pharmacological options. So working with, you know, working with um, psychology and and doing uh, pain coping types of stuff, uh, so, and really using to treat your pain. The example that I like to give families, uh, and sometimes because many times they've been referred to psychology, but they don't really understand why they got referred to psychology. Many times they'll actually say, uh, they, think "They, this is just another indication that this must be all in my head. I'm making this up." Um, and what I like to tell them, I said, let's use this as an, as an example, but you know, a lot of times we'll be in the, in the office and I spent a long time talking with them and you can kind of see their eyes have now glossed over. Cause if you haven't been able to tell, I like to talk. And so, um, I'll tell them, imagine you hop off that bed and you sprain your ankle. What might you take? And they'll say ibuprofen. Great, great answer. Perfect answer feeling better, you know, it's been a long day, you had to listen to this doctor talk, talk a hole in your head, and now you have a sprained ankle, you take some ibuprofen, you're feeling better, you turn the corner, and your mom turns the corner, and you collide heads, now you have a headache, it's been a rough day, what might you take for your headache, and they say, I don't know, ibuprofen, perfect answer, beautiful answer, and so I said, you take ibuprofen for your headache, and also your sprained ankle, I was like, two different mechanisms, two different locations, but you're using that same treatment to treat two because that pain pathway is the same. That's why I like to like to think about using psychology for the treatment of belly pain. Yes, psychology works for anxiety, yes it works for depression. Absolutely, but it also works for pain as well. And it also works for nausea and vomiting and those kind of things, right? And so, and I think that sometimes gets families to sort of buy in to the idea of we're using psychology and cognitive behavioral therapy in particular to help treat your pain, right? And help return you to function. It's doing both, helping you return to function, and also reduce your symptoms. Then you have other, there's more data coming out about the use of other integrated medicine, um, techniques like yoga, massage therapy, um, there's, there's um, really trying to activate other parts of the, uh, of the having the brain sort of focus on other parts of the body using physical therapy I many times will use physical therapy pretty often for the treatment of chronic abdominal pain especially for kids that are athletes um, they really buy into the idea of, of going to see a physical therapist for the, the treatment of, of their pain and then we kind of go into delve into the dietary stuff the big topics around dietary is really, you know, is really around the idea of uh, there are different types of diets that exist there's some data around that might help this low 5 map diets really kind of reduces the types of sh- types of sugars and alcohols that people are, are, are ingesting. There's people that there's some data around the use of um, decreasing the amount of uh, processed foods. There's, um, there's some data around just, just reducing simple sugars in general. Um, and then if there are certain types of food triggers, maybe some people may have celiac disease, but they feel like gluten really triggers them, or maybe milk really triggers them. Um, and the main thing I sort of tell them about food and food triggers is that it's okay to avoid a specific type of food but the answer can't be, I'm gonna avoid food, <laughs> right? And so you can, so there's different types of things we can do from a dietary standpoint. There's different things we can do from a, a, a non-medication standpoint, and there's different things we can do from a medication standpoint. One of the other things that uh, that, that we are beginning to do more of to really kind of attack this sort of brain-gut access and really sort of really pinpoint how we can actually begin to desensitize this pathway to get the signal to kind of turn down to help, fa- help patients feel better is neuromodulation, which I'll, I'll, I'll throw back to Dr. Santucci to talk a little bit about.
1: Yeah, so uh, it's beginning to become a very lucrative option uh, because many many times patients have side effects with medications or they don't want to take medications or they have too many medications already and you know there's interactions with these. So uh, neuromodulation um, is where we're doing auricular neuromodulation, meaning we are having leads that are attached to the ear, and uh, uh, they come to our office. It's actually done in our office. Um, You need to be certified and trained in the treatment. It's non-invasive. It's uh, really they come to your clinic once a week for four weeks. We place this device um, behind the ear. It delivers, uh, you know, electric impulses that is... Um, that the pathway or the idea is it's modulating chronic pain um, and it's intercepting some of the afferents from the nerves that are supplying the GI tract while they're going to the brain. Um, That's something, uh, you know, to think think of that early in certain situations, that may be a referral to gastroenterology where we could, those would be the patients that, you know, have uh, certain, you know, needs for this. In the long run, we are talking about thinking, should this be done in primary care offices, you know, and kind of is it's working on neuroplasticity. So if we can decrease the symptom development to dysfunction, uh, you know, at the grassroots level, would this be a better treatment? But so far, uh, you know, we do it in our offices and that would be another, you know, pathway. We do have details of all these uh, evaluations in our community support tool that we have uh, provided um, for functional abdominal pain, which primary care physicians can refer to.
0: So thank you. You guys have given us lots of tools to use in our primary care office. Um, what would be a time where you think we should refer to, the, to a gastroenterologist?
2: Yeah. So I think certainly if you have a kid that, you, that has red flags, right so someone has red flags and you're you know concerned that there may be an organic process that's going on that's certainly a reason to to refer to us i think it's also to refer to us in 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 early early in the process of you know you think this is ibs and you begin to or ibs or one of these other uh functional gi disorders or pain related functional gi disorders and you feel like that either one um you may not have the necessarily a necessary uh, multidisciplinary team to be able to sort of manage that child in in, in the way that's be best suited for them Two, you maybe potentially need uh, the family needs further buy-in. Sometimes we kind of partner together and, and get additional buy-in um, from, from, from from that standpoint. Also, three, if, you know, you find that these kids sort of their function or their symptoms are really just not getting better, um, and that would be a reason to also ha- have them come over. I would say in general, the sooner the better. I think, um, for, for from a buying standpoint and also from an improvement of function standpoint. I think sometimes when kids are, you know, so deep in their dysfunction, we have, you know, we have sometimes we see kids that are, you know, they've been dealing with symptoms, um, and they say they've been dealing with symptoms all their life sometimes they say they're 15 years old but many times it's several years um, and they've been out of school now for three four years um, and haven't returned back and stuff it becomes very challenging to do that in a, in a more outpatient kind of setting and sometimes they need a higher level of care but the sooner the better you know we, we're, we're pretty open, open access in terms of uh, having folks come see us and so we'll love to take care and see your patients
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Graham. Thank you, Dr. Santucci, for your time and expertise today. I think we've all learned a lot. Um, Just a reminder that today's podcast is available for CME credit. You can click on the link in the podcast app description for more information. Also, today's discussion was guided by the community practice support tool developed by Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. You can find that on the CincinnatiChildrens.org website. Thank you both for your time today and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Music